Hello, and welcome to the sixth episode of Biology Beyond the Microscope. My name is Katherine Gamewell. If you don't know already, this is a series where you will hear from different professors who will share their experiences as a professor and discuss what inspired them to pursue research in their specific topics. Today we are talking with Dr. Jeff Thorne. Dr. Thorne is a professor of genetics and statistics in the Department of Biological Sciences and the Department of Statistics here at NC State University. He earned his PhD in genetics at the University of Washington, and his research interests lie in evolution and the effects of population genetics, developing statistical tools for studying molecular evolution, protein evolution, and using molecular and fossil data to estimate the times since different species had common ancestors. All right, so we'll start with the first question. Okay. Uh, what led you to want to become a professor? So I was thinking about that and I realized what a um, creature of happenstance I am. I realized that uh, I never had and probably still don't have a career plan. I'm not as strategic as I should be. And so I think I'm kind of uh, going from one part of my life to the next without having a good vision. And so when I was in uh, high school, I had the idea that I should go to college. And I liked college a lot. I stayed in college uh, probably longer than you and most people do stay in college. But at some point, it became clear that that couldn't be eternal. And so it took me five years. But I had a lot of math and a lot of molecular biology. I majored in those courses and found that there was a way to combine my interests in biology and uh, math. And so the field that initially interested me was population genetics. I got some advice and I went to Seattle where there's a really good population geneticist, Joe Felsenstein, his name is. And he's uh, brilliant and he's a great guy, but he uh, maybe because he is good at everything, he kind of let me do what I wanted to do. And a lot of the time, I think in retrospect, the stuff that I wanted to do was pretty irrelevant to probably what I should be doing or what would benefit him because he didn't need me to benefit him, I guess. But anyhow, um, between my advisor, Joe Felsenstein, and a postdoc from Japan, who's still a great friend named Hirohisa Kashino, I finally learned how to do research and um, enjoyed it when I had about enough for a thesis. I, again, wasn't in a hurry, but I um, met Lee, who ended up being my wife, but she was my fiance, and she's much more strategic than I am. And so she knew that she wanted to go and do a postdoc. She arranged a postdoc in Wisconsin. So I thought I better do a postdoc. I tried to find one in Wisconsin that was in my area, but I really couldn't. And so I ended up doing a postdoc apart. Uh, from her, but um, I kind of did a postdoc just because she was doing a postdoc, really, to be honest. <laughs> and uh, even when I was a postdoc, I was uh, as um, out of touch with reality as I am now and always have been. So I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I uh, uh, was asked to apply for a position that was open here before I was really, I hadn't really thought about, I should have been thinking about faculty positions, but I hadn't. So I applied here. I originally got hired in the statistics department. And uh, I guess at that point I was a professor, but even then I didn't really uh, have a good plan. I, I wasn't thinking like I should, should have been in retrospect about getting tenure and so on. But the people in statistics at the time were, um, I think it's harder for uh, 
people at your stage, harder for new faculty now because I think uh, life is more competitive than it was when, when I was young. And so I think I got away with a lot of stuff. I worked hard, but I, I wasn't really uh, as focused as, as I think um, <laughs> a lot of people are. So that's a long, <laughs> um, uh, not very direct way of saying that I didn't have a good strategic plan. And I, I, I just kind of became a professor. I didn't really mm -hmm. have a, a vision. Well, I'm sure your students are glad you're a professor. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> so what was the research topic that you first became interested in? So since I've been a kid, I really liked animals, uh, had all kinds of pets, too many uh, lizards and salamanders and insects and so on. I got, got um, uh, interested in this really from both sets of grandparents. I was, I was close to, to both of my sets of grandparents and they kind of in, in their own peculiar ways encouraged me. And so I was always interested in biology, but I didn't really do research uh, ever until I was in college. And in college, I got a job with an applied ecologist. He was studying uh, uh, tiger swallowtails, you know, tiger swallowtails, mm -hmm. they're the really pretty, we have tiger swallowtails here. I was in Wisconsin at the time and in Wisconsin, kind of through the middle of the state, um, there's a, there's a zone where two, what they used to call subspecies of tiger swallowtail, now they call different species, Papilio cadensis and Papilio glaucus meet. And the question is why is one species in the north and one species in the south? Both species can survive on certain plants, and on certain plants, certain kinds of trees, only one species or only other species can survive. So I got a job being a research assistant for these um, people studying butterfly ecology and host plant specialization. And to be honest, I didn't understand and still don't understand much of the research that they were doing, but I loved it. I loved the people that I was with. I had a boss who's still a friend named Mark Evans, who... Uh, He's the kind of person, if you know anybody like this, who can walk out in the woods and you can point at any animal, any plant, and he'll tell you what it is. He'll yeah. tell you something about And so that was just great. I didn't understand the science whatsoever, but <laughs> I didn't really understand that I didn't understand. And I just thought it was fun. And so I thought that's what scientists do, right? They go, they go around, they chase butterflies with nets because that's what people in this group did. <laughs> and so then when I went in and it turned out, you know, after lots of... Uh, time along the way, I ended up working behind a computer to study biology using genetics. And so the first topic that I really, I think, made my own research contributions to is called sequence alignment. So it's a basic thing that we do in genetics. If you get, for example, the DNA sequence that specifies a protein from maybe humans and the DNA sequence from some other species, say dog, that specifies the corresponding protein in dogs, because of evolution, the DNA sequences will be a little bit different. For example, a point mutation might change one of the DNA letters, like an A to a G. Mm -hmm. And also, there are events in evolution that will insert or delete, by chance, certain sections of the sequence of DNA that codes for a protein. And at the time, people were doing, were starting to get genetic data, although it used to be way harder to do than technology it's available today, yeah. that's right. Yeah. But basically, the question is, if you have the sequence from humans and you have the sequence from dogs and they correspond, what positions in 
this human sequence correspond to what positions in the dot, for example. And that issue of sequence alignment was something that people hadn't traditionally thought about as a statistical problem. And so this, these mentors of mine, um, Joe Felsenstein and Hirohisa Kashino and I, we basically tried to formulate the statistical questions that were related to um, this. And there had been good work on this topic, but it was pretty new, mm -hmm. this idea of thinking of how do DNA sequences, how does genetic data from different species, how does it correspond? This kind of sequence alignment as a statistical problem was pretty new. And so that was really where I first had a contribution. Wow, yeah. yeah. So that just goes to show how interdisciplinary areas can be. How yeah. much science and math and that all connects. That, that's, that's something that I, I really enjoy because I'm not a great biologist and I'm not a great statistician, but I know enough to talk to the different groups, you know, and I get to talk with because of the fact that in genetic uh, data analyses these days we have big data sets. I get to talk to really smart computer scientists, and it turns out that evolutionary trees, you can think of them as a special kind of graph, and there are really smart uh, mathematicians who study these graphs. And so I've been really lucky because although I'm not as good at any of those areas as people in math or statistics or computer science or biology. I know enough that I can talk with them and it's really fun. It's really yeah. fun also to see the different subcultures, you know, to see the <laughs> peculiarities of these, you know, all scientists are probably geeks, but mathematicians tend to be geeky in different ways than biologists. Yeah. And so yeah. that's kind of enjoyable to me. That's so funny. Yeah. All right. So what's the, is this the research that you're doing today then, like currently or? Well, so I'm still using DNA and protein sequences mm -hmm. to study evolution, but I'm not working as much on the sequence alignment question. Um, that's still a big question because uh, we're getting so much genetic data and to understand, uh, it turns out that evolution has been really important, not just for studying evolution, but evolution is important for all of these other areas, including um, if we want to know, for example, what this happened a bunch when we were starting to get human uh, genome data, if we want to know what is the function, the biological function of some sequence encoding a protein in humans, we might not know from the sequence data. From the sequence data, we might say, oh, this looks like a protein sequence, but what does that protein do? And one of the key things that people did is they said, oh, well, if you can show that this human sequence is similar in sequence to a sequence that's already been studied in some model organism, then maybe if you know the function of the sequence in the model organism, you can guess what's the sequence in humans. And so, for example, if you find that the sequence from humans is similar in sequence to, to a yeast gene that's been studied, yeast genes were the genes that were uh, that was where the cell cycle was first understood. And in fact, what's happened is people have found that there are genes that disrupt the cell cycle in humans when they're mutated. Those genes are related to the yeast uh, genes that are important in the cell cycle. And if in the cell cycle, certain genes are disrupted, for example, cells will proliferate like in cancer. And so it's turned out that say some of the most important cancer genes have direct counterparts in yeast. And we would have never been able to figure out so quickly what are the human genes doing, except that we have 
these sequences that are corresponding yeast. And the way people do that is by basically an automated, really, really fast version of doing sequence alignment, comparing, say, a sequence that you get from humans by aligning it, by looking at how it corresponds statistically to all the sequences in the database. And sometimes you'll find that it really, really corresponds to one particular sequence and that function's known. So I'm doing the professor thing wow. of blathering, but anyhow, so, so <laughs> yeah. it turns out that alignment is real important, but a lot of the important developments, I still try to follow the field, but some really, really smart people have really taken off in this field. And so both computationally and statistically, it's way beyond my expertise these days. <laughs> well, it sounds like you, you got in when, when yeah, it was, I was good, though. <laughs> the, the timing was lucky for me. That yeah. worked out very well. <laughs> All right, so we're going to move on to our next question. Uh, what does a day in your job at NC State look like? I think it, it depends on uh, the day. Uh, so, for example, um, this semester I am doing research and I'm doing so-called service. And so what that means is that um, I'm really free to decide. Uh, I think I work pretty hard but I'm really free to determine my hours and pretty free to determine where I do my research because my research involves reading, involves programming, involves talking with students and, and collaborators. And so I can do that pretty much anywhere. And uh, at least for me, what seems to happen too much is I, I overcommit to things. So I say, yeah, I'll review that proposal. I'll I'll review this paper, I'll sit on this panel or whatever, and uh, then I end up feeling like the stuff that I really get rewarded for, which is research, isn't getting as much of my time as it should. But a typical day is um, pretty variable now, and as you can guess, like I'll be doing substantially more teaching next semester, and then it's uh, a lot of stuff that teachers do, and, mm -hmm. and um, on those days, um, for me anyhow, I always have to spend some time before class to really get my thoughts together. Some people can just show up and, and be right on topic, and I can't, as you yeah. can probably tell. Yeah. So. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm sure we, I mean, I mean, even before I go to class, I look at my notes, yeah. you know, got to get in the zone. <laughs> All right, which direction would you advise NC State students to take when looking for research topics? So I don't have good advice, I think, okay. on that. I think that... Um, for undergraduates, um, I think research is a good experience, but I think that uh, these days, especially, say, in biology, a lot of people who are doing biology-related undergraduate majors, you know, they might want to go into health-related professions later. A lot of those professions are really competitive, and so I think students are under extreme pressure to really grow their resumes to say, I did research, I did this activity, I did that, and they have to have a list of 37 activities. And mm, yeah. a lot of the people who are applying for veterinary or medical school or some of these really exclusive kinds of postgraduate degrees, there's a lot of competition, so they grow their resumes. And I think that these people, uh, a lot of them are really sharp, but they, they, uh, it's hard to, it's hard to really taste research if you're if you're just doing it an hour or two a week and so if if you want to do research for your resume because you have to do it i mean you should do it but if you really want to get a feel for what it's like it's good if you can at least from my perspective if you can set aside 
a big chunk of time, like one day a week or whatever, where you really immerse yourself in it. Um, for me, that's incredibly helpful. Yeah. So I would, I would, I would think about not just touching research by you know doing it an hour a week, but trying to do a four-hour chunk or an eight-hour chunk uh, each week. That that I think gives people a better feel for what it really is. Yeah, definitely. Um, so as we come to a close, yeah. is there any parting words of wisdom or any extra advice you have? No. Um, <laughs> uh, thanks for interviewing me. It's, it's yeah, uh, absolutely. great. And I hope, hope your project and your future go super. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time when I'll be speaking with Dr. Michael Birchall in the Department of Biological and Agricultural Engineering. Stay curious!